Hello again, this is Alan Lightman. Our three-part public television series, Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science, continues premiering on PBS stations nationwide and remains accessible on pbs.org through May 2023. After that, many stations will offer the series to members in their passport collection. All programs will continue streaming on Searching for Meaning Org, in both English and in Spanish with closed captions thanks to the support from the U.S. Department of Education. My on-camera conversations for searching captured some fascinating material from a diverse cast of characters, Nobel laureates, MacArthur geniuses, leading researchers in biology, neuroscience, physics, and astronomy, plus philosophers, ethicists, faith leaders, and a humanoid robot. These podcasts share more of that material than we can include in the broadcast series. And I gratefully acknowledge that both the series and these podcasts are made possible by a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. This podcast features Professor Rainer Ray Weiss, a 2017 Nobel laureate in physics for his work on LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Detector. Albert Einstein predicted the existence of gravitational waves back in 1915 as a consequence of his revolutionary new theories of space and time. But he also said that they would be too weak to ever be detected. It took 40 years of effort by Ray Weiss and fellow Nobel laureates, theorist Kip Thorne and project director Barry Barish and hundreds of other collaborators to devise, build, and test the LIGO instruments that would eventually prove Einstein wrong. In 2015, LIGO detected gravitational waves from the collision of two black holes more than a billion light years from Earth. To me, Ray's four decades of work to find a signal, something so tiny and elusive, is a story of astonishing human imagination, technical innovation, and perseverance. I wondered what kept Professor Weiss going for so many years. So do you get pleasure out of building things? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, of course, what over the years has kept me going in all the different experiments. I love to make electronics, and, uh, and it doesn't work right away. Yeah, you've built it, you made it, and it, it doesn't do the thing it was supposed to do. Well, that's fun. Yeah, there's a challenge right there. So you sit there and stew about it, and all of a sudden, yeah, of course, if I'd done it the other way around, this would have worked. And you try it, and it works. And then you go out and have a beer with the guys around you. I spoke with Ray in the High Bay workshop at MIT, where much of the early work on LIGO was done. Even with permission to shut down many of the computers, the background sound was still pretty loud. Very good to see you, Ray. That's good to see you, Alan. <laughs> um, I wanted to start by asking you how you first got interested in, in science, and, and particularly experimental science. It has to do with music. And <clears throat> when I was a kid, I was fixing radios. That was sort of, don't ask me how I got into that. I have often thought about it. Did I have an uncle that knew about radios? None of that. Don't ask. I don't know. <clears throat> but I did get into the business of fixing electronics and became a ham. And uh, 
little bit little, and you have to know the time. It was about 1947 to 1950. And what was coming at that time was the beginning of high fidelity, radio, high fidelity phonographs, radio. And uh, I was very, very lucky. I happened to uh, run into a movie theater in Brooklyn, New York, that had a, a fire behind the stage. And uh, a friend of mine and I went there, and I have a still a loudspeaker, but uh, we got about four or five monster movie loudspeakers, 15-inch loudspeakers with tweeters inside. And uh, so we had to fix it. And But anyway, I had this incredible loudspeakers. And then I built FM set and a very good amplifier, which the, Brit the British had invented, a very clever way of getting around certain problems in amplifiers. And I would bring my father in, who was, you know, he was a doctor, a psychoanalyst. And uh, yeah, he, we, we would sit there and listen to the New York Philharmonic. Live, live performances of the New York Philharmonic on that FM set. And it sounded like you were sitting in the concert hall in Carnegie Hall. So he would bring his friends and we into, into my room where this all was set up. And they would listen to the concerts, live concerts. And they wanted the same thing. So I also had a little business going after a while. And uh, they, wanted, they wanted to have a, lot, a whole system like that. And they were willing to pay for it. So I didn't have enough time. I still was going to school. But a little more and more, that business took over. And how old were you at this time? I was 16, 17, something like that. And, uh, and the thing that, that was fun and great. And it was wonderful. But there was a terrible thing going on when you wanted to listen to something over more than once. You had to buy a phonograph record. Now, phonograph records in those days were pieces of shellac that had, you put a needle into a groove and the groove had modulation on it and the wiggling of the needle made the noise and threw electromagnetic transducers. But there was a real problem. If you listen to a Beethoven sonata, for example, and uh, you get to the slow movement, all you could hear is that hissing noise from the needle. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And so I kept trying to think, how do you fix this? How do you get around this problem? And I didn't, I was full of what I would call street electronics, not professional electronics. Stuff you pick up in popular science or popular mechanics and stuff like that. And so I didn't really know electronics, but it was all quite intuitive, but based on little models that I'd made up in my head that hadn't much to do with reality. But this was one step past what I knew how to do. How do you make a filter? That, the idea was good. The idea was when the music is quiet, you reduce the bandwidth so that the high frequency hiss of that needle didn't get out and ruin everything. And then when the music got louder and faster, you opened the bandwidth up. And everything I could think of that would do that was worse than the, the disease. So I decided I'd better go to college. I'm going to learn how to do that. And that was the beginning of actually a more serious technical thing. I went to MIT. And uh, they, for reasons I can't tell you, they accepted me because my grades were not wonderful. So it sounds like a signal-to-noise problem. It was. It was fundamentally, that's the beginning in whole my, whole my rest of my life is based on improving the signal to noise. Sort of, sort of, it's sort of a tragedy or wrapped up in a ball, you know? I mean, couldn't you say that a lot of LIGO was about the signal to noise? Oh, it's all about signal to noise. And uh, it's all about changing the bandwidth where you have to. It's sort of completely crazy that that should have happened that way. And you learned how to do that when you were a 17-year-old with, with, with radios and phonograph needles. Well, yeah, but you know, I learned it. I didn't really learn it then. And that was a big disappointment to me when I came to MIT. 
I, I, I came in as an electrical engineer. I wanted to know where could you learn how to do that sort of stuff. And uh, that was the only course that had stuff like that, but it, MIT was a very different kind of place in 1950 than it is now. I mean, there was a very regimented curriculum, and if you want to find out something that was not in that curriculum, you had to make friends with somebody who was a professor, but the professors didn't make friends so easily with the students. It was a very different place. And I was very disappointed. In my sophomore year, I still hadn't learned electronics from any of these people, and I quit. I quit, and I looked in the catalog and decided, where can I get something where I can at least find out how to fix this problem? And now with the physics and that department. Was physics. Don't ask me why. But vinyl records were the thing that solved that record noise problem. You got a little bit of pop every once in a while from a vinyl record, but there was none of that horrible record noise. So even if I had found a solution to it, it would have been a very transient solution. So, so you, 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 it sounds like you started off with, with sort of the intuition of an experimentalist. Oh, yeah, very much. Oh, yeah, I would never be a theorist. I mean, I, I had trouble with formal mathematics unless it was somehow related to something real in front of me. And that's still true. I mean, if it's formalism, it doesn't, unless I can make a geometry out of it, or I can make a picture out of it, it doesn't attract me much, or it doesn't help, it doesn't inform much. I mean, you're a completely different person. I'm, I'm the opposite. I know you are. In my right. freshman yeah. physics course, my, my experiment caught fire. And, <laughs> well, and I'm, I mean, I could see there were people who were much better with their hands yeah. than me. They were the people like you. Um, who just intuitively knew how to make things work, how to build things. Well, they also probably liked it better. So do you get pleasure out of building things? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, of course, what over the years has kept me going in all the different experiments. Next, Professor Weiss talks about measuring the cosmic microwave background, which are radio waves filling up all of outer space and originating from the very early universe. These cosmic radio waves, like all radio waves, have a wavelength longer than visible light in the millimeter range, that is, about a tenth of an inch. I mean, that was also got me into trouble, by the way, at MIT, because I like to build things. I mean, uh, and I'll, I'll explain that to you. Uh, when you build stuff yourself, for example, in the early days, we were trying to measure the cosmic background radiation. Uh, you know, that radiation that came from the earliest moments of the history of the universe. And that was in a very uncomfortable frequency band, at a band in millimeter waves, which at the time when we, this became important, sort of in the 60s, uh, 65, 66, 67, uh, you couldn't buy stuff that was in the millimeter wave band. You had to make it. You had to do it yourself. You had to make something that would detect in the millimeter wave band. And so that took a time. Always takes, took time to make something. And my colleagues, who were more professional than I was about this thing, didn't like the idea that it took so long to do an experiment. You know, they would publish a paper or two a year. It would take me sort of three years to publish one paper. You know, and it looked like I was just sort of being you know, terribly slow and unimaginative. But it turns out when you build things, it takes time to build them. Then you have to check them. But if, and, and for me, it was a great pleasure to build them. Oh. Can you describe the pleasure a little, little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, it's easy. Take anything, that's, LIGO is full of stuff like that. Uh, I love to make electronics. And uh, you know, you design the electronics, now I know a little more. And, uh, and it doesn't work right away. Yeah, you've built it, you've made it, and it, it, it doesn't do the thing it's, it's supposed to do. Well, that's fun. Yeah, there's a challenge right there. 
So you sit there and stew about it, and all of a sudden, yeah, of course, of course, if I'd done it the other way around, this would have worked. And you try it, and it works. And then you go out and have a beer with the guys around you. And say, look, and they, we all take tremendous pleasure in looking at how this thing now does what it's supposed to do. And that also extends to making things, mechanical things. Do you, you think that experimentalists have more pleasure than theorists on it? Oh, I guarantee you that. <laughs> no, here was a thing that did things. And it was forever a pleasure. Sometimes people accuse you of being an apparatus polisher. You know, you polish it up a little bit. I didn't do that. And we had people in the lab who did that. And that isn't what I'm talking about. You know, the thing looks ugly. That's not the point. But it, the idea behind it works. And you were the ones who made it. You thought the thing through. And yes, you made it go with your own thinking and your own hands. Uh, tell me a little bit about how the idea for LIGO first came about. Oh boy, that's complicated. That's very complicated. I don't know how much you want, but uh, I'll tell you well, the story. a I little mean, bit, yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Uh, you have to know a little more ahead of that. I, after I flunked out of MIT, which I did, I had run into this wonderful lady who then got completely entranced, didn't finish courses, flunked out. So I got a job in a lab of Gerald Zacharias. And he was working on atomic clocks at the time. And he wanted to make a better clock than ever for a very interesting reason. He told me something about Einstein, which I knew nothing about. I mean, I, know, I knew very little of the rest of physics. Uh, but he told me that Einstein had come up with a theory where the clocks run at different rates in different gravitational fields, different gravitational potentials. And I said, holy mackerel, how does that work? And uh, so he wanted to have, he had already built uh, atomic clocks, which were being used by the military, by everybody. In fact, by that time, you couldn't have GPS without atomic clocks, let's face it. But by that time, it wasn't yet GPS, but it was only possible to do certain things with the time standards that were good enough. And he wanted to show that the thing he had worked on had what I, he called it scientific merit, not only technical merit. And he wanted to do the following experiment. And this is where the whole thing with gravity began. Uh, he said, we're going to build a clock that's good to a part in 10 to the 13. The way he presented it to me was quite dramatic. He was going to be in the valley in the Jungfrau Joch, uh, you know, in, in Switzerland, with one of our clocks. And I was going to be on top of the mountain on the Jungfrau. There's a big station up on top of that. And with another one of those clocks. And we would send signals to each other. And they would be different by parts in 10 to the 13. In an amazing coincidence, the top of the Jungfrau Joch is where our searching miniseries chose to film the concluding sequence of our third program. That's where you see me freezing cold and barely able to get the words out. And that's exactly where Professor Weiss took part in his experiment seven decades earlier. According to Einstein's theory of gravity, gravity affects the ticking rates of clocks. Gravity at the bottom of a mountain is stronger than gravity at the top, which is further from the center of the Earth. According to Einstein, the lower clock should tick more slowly. Height of the mountain versus the valley. And uh, so that sounded absolutely fascinating. I mean, the trip to Europe alone, come on. And, but the clock didn't work. I don't think I want to go into why it didn't work, but it didn't work because something we didn't understand in physics had to do with getting slow atoms. And nowadays, you could make it work. And now, in fact, you have clocks that do exactly what Gerald Zacharias wanted. They let an atom slow, like you throw a ball up, and it falls down. You observe an atom for that long, and that allows you to get a very good clock. 
you have the long observation time. And now you can do the experiment, but you don't need to anymore. It's been done many, many other ways. So, but that set of B in my bonnet about this Einstein thing is really interesting. And when I, I went, when I graduated, I went to Princeton to work with a guy named Bob Dickey. And that was a guy who was sort of at the very beginning of the renaissance of gravitational physics. Uh, the, I mean, and you probably know as well as I do, or maybe even better, that when you entered the field, it was coming out of the doldrums in a way. I mean, experiment had begun to follow theory, and theory and experiment had begun to interact in gravity. I mean, there had been new measurements made of the bending of light, the bending of, of radio waves, the, the better clocks. Shapiro had measured that the, you, send light, you send radio waves, they, right. they don't travel exactly the velocity of light as it looks. So anyway, things were really happening in that field, and a lot of that was due to Bob Dickey's thinking. And uh, so it turned out that when I went to him, I worked on an experiment to look at were there scalar waves of gravitation of his kind that took the Earth and changed its shape. In other words, caused the Earth to shrink completely uniformly, spherically symmetrically, and then expand spherically symmetrically, and then shrink again. And we tried to do an experiment to look for that. Turns out it takes 20 minutes for the Earth to do that. It's a mode of the Earth. Well, we didn't see anything. But I came back to MIT and started a group, uh, which Gerald got me. Gerald Zacharias, again, is the guy who was central to my life. He brought me back, and I started a group on cosmology and gravitation. I'm almost getting the answer to your question. It's very close. And what happened is that, I won't know what the initial project was, but the guy who was running the department that time was the guy who says, hey, we got a guy now in the department interested in cosmology and gravitation, which hadn't been true for 20 years. It had all gone into mathematics. See, there was gravitation and cosmology at MIT, but not in physics. It was in mathematics. And so uh, he asked me to give a course in general relativity. That's where it happened. Well, what I knew about general relativity, you could stick in the end of my pinky. I mean, barely. I didn't know any of the theory. But I, co I couldn't say I couldn't do it. I mean, that, I had to lie. That was obvious. So I lied. And I said, OK, I'll give that course. And so I spent the summer trying to learn the mathematics of general relativity. And look, I was very, very lucky to have a bunch of students who were generous, who realized I was a bit of a jerk. I couldn't really explain everything. But what I did explain, I explained geometrically. And they were always fascinated by that. So what happened, and this is what the, the answer to your question, is the, the, the course was being given about 65, 1966. And what happened is, at that time, Joseph Weber was beginning to do his experiments on gravitational waves. And he was giving talks at physical society meetings about these great big aluminum bars that he had, and how they could possibly, maybe he was even saying they were detecting gravitational waves. And uh, they wanted to know what the hell that was all about. And I couldn't explain it. And so I sat home, invented for myself the thing that I one thing I could do that was geometric. And it turned out it's, it was the kernel of the idea that made LIGO. The idea was this. 
it was not that a bar somehow would be, get pulled by the gravitational waves. See, that's part I thought was gone out the window. When you teach general relativity, there's no more gravitational forces. Forget about it. They're gone. It's all geometry. So how do I show this geometrically? And the idea was a thing I presented as a, as a problem to the kids. I did it part of the way, and they did it as a homework problem. But here was the idea. You take a mass, put it over here, and on that mass you put a laser. Okay, a laser and a switch for the laser. Now over here is another mass, and you take these two masses are just going along, and the gravitational wave, which will come in a minute, will come down on the system in a minute. And uh, so what happens is that the laser is turned on, and a switch opens it, the light goes from this mass to that one, it reflects from a mirror on that one, comes back to here, and then you, when it gets back, it, the switch gets closed and you measure the time it took. So you measure the time it takes the laser beam to go from here to there and back again. And that time, once a gravitational wave comes along and goes between those two masses, changes. It's a really simple calculation. And really, it's a, you don't, yes, you use tensors, but you use the metric tensor. And that's all you use. And you don't use Ricci tensors. You don't use tidal forces. You don't use anything I didn't understand. And that was sort of a problem. I gave it. And that was it. And then we got on the cosmology, which was fascinating. And every, all of us forgot about that. So when you did that calculation yeah, as, as a homework problem, did, did you estimate how much sensitivity? No, none of that. You didn't estimate that? No, we did nothing. I just want to show this is you a, way to show it. a way to it do it. It was a Gedanken experiment. So, Gedanken experiment. So, yes, you asked the right question, Alan. A Gedanken experiment means a thought experiment, something that Albert Einstein was known for. By 1969, Weber had published that he had measured, and the whole world, I mean, it's an easy experiment to reproduce. The Weber experiment was not that difficult. I mean, putting, putting little gauges on a bar and sticking the bar in a, in a vacuum system is not hard. It was the imagination that Weber had to do it was hard. But once you saw how he did it, it was not that hard to reproduce. So a lot of people in the world had also measured and done this and found zip, found nothing, which was a very big disappointment to everybody. And that summer, some summer of 71, I went in an old building here, which is now gone, and sat in a little room and I said, you know, that Gedanken experiment, maybe you convert it, could be converted into a real detective. And that's when, that, that's when the calculations were done. And I found out to my surprise that if you made the thing big enough, you had to make it big, you know, kilometers big. And you had to have really powerful lasers. And you had to not have just one mass, but you had to have two masses so you could subtract one mass and the other and use all the symmetries of the gravitational wave and exploit everything you knew. You might be able to detect the gravitational wave from a pulsar. That was the idea. And I put that in a uh, quarterly progress report of my laboratory. And then that was 1971. That was a 70, yeah, 70. The thing came out in 72, but it was but a, the calculation was done in the summer of 71. Albert Einstein, whose theory predicted the existence of gravitational waves, he thought that they were, they were too weak to ever be detected. So do you think you're smarter than Einstein? No, 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 no. I'm not going to be being smarter. I didn't know that. I, in terms of what Einstein could have known about technology, he was absolutely right. See, given that I did some calculations just for myself, what could he have done? Well, the strongest source he could have imagined, the man-made source that he could imagine, 
two trains smashing into each other. I mean, railroad trains smashing into each other. LIGO is arguably the most sensitive scientific instrument ever built. Weiss mentioned something called a strain, which is a measure of the sensitivity of a gravitational wave detector. The strain is the fractional change in distance of two masses when a gravitational wave passes by. You find out the strain is 10 to the minus 40. I mean, that really is impossible. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he made that calculation. And uh, they, he could have also made a, a number based on what binary stars were known. No, there were some binary stars. They had periods of, oh, the, even the shortest ones were period tens of days. And in tens of days, you would find that, yeah, the gravitational radiation might be not so small. It might be 10 to the minus 23 per square root frequency. But it, in order to see a change in the spacing of those two, two stars, you would have to wait something like the age of the universe to see them, them getting closer together because they've lost energy to gravitation. I'm sure he made a number like that. And uh, yeah, no, the big thing that changed it was the technology. So it's, it's, it's the technology and the greater knowledge of astronomical sources. That, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's both of them. I mean, now you're right. We found sources that are fast. But I'll tell you something. We already knew about white dwarfs and binary white dwarfs. They were, called, they were not called white dwarfs. And they will radiate in the Lisa band. So it, it's not completely out of the question that, well, but, yeah, but I don't want to, let's not make embellish it more, right. but you're right. Yeah. It's yeah. The, you're right, the neutron stars and the black holes, which are a very different story, by the way. Right. The neutron stars was, were loved and beloved by everybody. That was the 1960s. That's, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, well, but the black holes were unbeloved by a lot of people. And uh, that yeah. was a story here, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you, You've worked on LIGO for a very long time before you actually got a detection. Uh, yeah. 40 years or something like that. Yeah, so what? What, what? what kept you going for so long? Yeah, well, look, I, there are a couple of things. I mean, the flip answer is the right answer, the one I gave you once before, and that is that it was fun to work on. That is the right answer. But there was a, there's another little piece of other answer to it, that if it succeeded, it would be quite interesting, okay? So it was, first of all, fun to work on. And I thought about that later. Would have I worked on other things that are fun to work on? Rather, if I had many things to work on that were fun, which they all are, which one would I pick? I'd pick the one that was interesting if the result was positive. And when you say interesting, what do you mean by Maybe, that? Well, you know, would be, would be interesting to, the, you know, would change the way people thought about things. I mean, not, you know, I, I, to me, that's important, that, that it isn't something you, you know, you haven't made a better, better measurement of the shape of an ammonium atom or something like that. That's that. Now, this is something that, that discovered gravitational waves. That's something Einstein was thought about, and it, it would be an interesting new topic for people to investigate. I thought that had to have a little bit of that, but the most important reason is the one I gave you, namely that when you look at it and when we designed this prototype back in 1972, the prototype looked like it was fun to work on, and it was. But there were some problems, I mean, with it, which caused the thing not to be so much fun. But as LIGO, LIGO became a project, there were so many challenges. All experimental physicists like Professor Weiss worry about what they call the signal-to-noise ratio. Here, Professor Weiss talks about noise isolation, 
which means understanding and compensating for all the phenomena that can jiggle the two masses other than a gravitational wave. You have to understand the noise before you can be sure that the jiggling is caused by an actual gravitational wave. Each one was fun, the ground noise isolation, how to make that so it worked, how to make it so that the servos that keep, kept the mirrors at their fixed positions, that they actually did what they're supposed to do. I mean, all of those were fantastic challenges. But once they worked, they were just a pleasure to, to see the electronics do that and the system do that. It was just too much fun. I mean, then, you know, I wouldn't have done it if it hadn't. It needed, the thing kept giving you encouragement. That's the thing I'm trying to tell you. Yeah. So what do you, why is the detection of gravitational waves important? I mean, could you compare it to Galileo's telescope of 1610 where well, people have done that. I, to me, it's important for a couple of reasons. Um, I always felt that E&M was a real triumph, electricity and magnetism. I mean, I, when I learned how to derive in my silly, you know, dumb, non-theoretical way, the Thompson formula for the amount of radiation by a dipole, it's a very pretty picture you draw. I said, why doesn't that picture work for gravity? It doesn't seem to. And I, I said, there's got to be a way that gravity has a very comparable thing. You had to pick something that was general enough so that it worked for every coordinate. That was just beyond my ability. So I had to have pictures. And uh, so to me, that was very important that there would be a thing that transmitted information, not instantaneously, from one place to another by gravity. And, uh, and that was important. I thought if you could show that, that would be really quite significant. And Einstein, of course, had already thought about that. But, um, and uh, then that it would open a whole new field in astronomy was actually kind of secondary in my mind. Why LIGO succeeded in finding something that Einstein thought impossible was due to new technology, plus discoveries of bizarre objects in space, discoveries made after Einstein himself was dead. Neutron stars are extremely dense stars and possible sources of gravitational radiation when they collide with each other. A neutron star has the mass of our sun compressed to a sphere about 10 miles in diameter. Black holes can be even more massive and more compact than neutron stars. But black holes weren't discovered until 1972. The first black hole was discovered by seeing X-rays coming from a pair of orbiting stars except one of the stars, the black hole, was invisible. What are some of the new things about the universe that gravitational waves well, I can mean, tell us? Let, I mean, they, 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 they snowball. That's what's happened. That there would be, the first thing we would see is black holes. Uh, but I mean, now it makes very good sense. They're heavier than neutron stars, and we see them further out, and there are more of them, than, but nobody expected them to exist at all. And then the people here, actually another part of MIT, discovered black holes, the X-ray astronomers. They found these things, you know, in, in X-ray stars, and they found a star they knew and loved. They could tell everything about, but it was going around something they couldn't see. And it wasn't a neutron star, because it weighed a hell of a lot more than a neutron star. That was Cygnus X-1, the, all, yeah, the very all first those one. X-ray sources, they all have dark companions, which weigh more than two solar yeah. masses. So, you know, what the hell is it? At Caltech, my PhD thesis advisor was Kip Thorne, a theorist who later worked closely with Ray and shared the 2017 LIGO Nobel Prize with him. 
So I was a graduate student in the early 1970s when Cygnus X1 was discovered, and, and I was one of the, the early group of graduate students who started working on black holes yeah. and, and binary systems. But you were in Kip's group at the time. I was in Kip's group, yeah, yeah. and I was very privileged to be no, that at must that have been place in time. Exciting it, it was time. really exciting, yeah. because up until that point, black holes were just considered the playthings of theoretical physicists. Exactly. And they were so strange that God would not have made them, you know, that kind of thing. Well, then God's made a lot of strange things. <laughs> <laughs> so my understanding is that, that when you got started on the LIGO project, that you had a little trouble getting funding at MIT, and you were happy that it, well, it, it eventually was a collaboration between MIT and Caltech. Well, but it was actually there... an essential collaboration. Let me tell you. It, that has to do a little bit with my own inability to be a very good politician. I, I mean, I mean, there's blame on my side also. But you're right. It was not something. It, 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 well, I lived in something called Building 20. Now, that Building 20 was a relic, a relic of World War II, and you can go to the you can go to the web and look at pictures of an old plywood palace that ran along one of the major streets in Cambridge behind MIT. And uh, I was in that building until the bitter end. Only crazy people lived in that building. Asbestos-walled buildings. Oh. And uh, they, it was a wonderful building for an experiment. Because you could do what you wanted. You could, tear the, you could tear a hole in the floor. You could tear a hole in the, in the ceiling. You could do anything you wanted. Nobody gave a shit. I mean, simply nobody gave a damn. And, uh, and the rats were in the building, but you dealt with them. So MIT was trying to get rid of that building. And I was in there because I made a big campaign to have all this lab space, which I couldn't have otherwise. And I was working on experiments that didn't produce many papers. That was the, right up to the bitter end. And I think the only reason that I managed to stay at MIT, and that's a, a surmise on my part, is because Gerald Zacharias, the guy who was my mentor, said, look, if you don't give this guy tenure, I'm going to report you, or something. God knows what. Uh, you know, and they had no real and nowadays, when I see the process, I could not have been a, a candidate for tenure. Just looked like an impossible situation. No papers, certainly not enough. No big discoveries. What the hell do you want with that guy? Do you think yeah. that were there people in the administration who thought that that it was a crazy idea to try to detect well, gravitational waves? Well, but you have to get the ambiance first. Okay, like so a crazy man living in Building Twenty. I mean, I have <laughs> that. You have to have that in your head to understand how these fairly. In intense and not actually stupid administrators made some very bad decisions. Okay, and they made some very bad decisions. And I'll give you exactly where it happened. It happened um, in two places. One was to, would have been probably true at any university. When I wrote that thing up on how to make a little gravitational wave antenna, it looked, I got a little bit of money from the military, because the military at that time was supporting research. I, it didn't matter what the research was. They had one condition to give, you, give the university money. You had to graduate the student. That was the condition. Now, you're a little bit later than that, I think. That was, that was called the Joint Services Program the military had. Very important program. Has been very little written, written about it. It got American science going again after the Second World War. But the idea was simply this. We will always need good scientists and engineers for the next war, if it should happen. And so we have to have a cadre that's ready to do this. 
because look what they did for us in the Second World War. Yes, they made the atom bomb. They not well. They did much more than the atom bomb. They sure. made radar. They made sure. proximity right. fuses. They made sonar. They did. I mean, a, a lot of stuff the military hadn't even invented. And radar was developed here at MIT. And radar right? was right here. Yeah. Well, it was really developed in Britain, but let, but let that go. Building twenty, yeah. maybe. And uh, so, the thing was that uh, the, uh, the the military had put fifty thousand dollars into this because they were sure that I was going to generate a few scientists. And the, the managers here didn't really have any, any, any idea. And then along comes the Vietnam War, which was a disaster for everybody. And it was the left, especially, didn't like the war. We still had a draft in those days. And the draft had people who were just like you and me and people from New York City. They're not just people from the South who are poor in the army. That's a fantastic difference than what we have now. And so consequently, people would write who were in Vietnam, who had their parents in New York or in Boston, and they say, what a terrible war we're in. This is awful. And this made politics very uncomfortable for people trying to keep that war going. And the war, I think the draft was critical to getting rid of the Vietnam War. And so what happened was that uh, the, then they would defend what happens to liberals first tried to get rid of the war by designating, let's declare victory and get the hell out of it. That's called Mansfield Amendment number one. Then they, that didn't work by the way, it was an amendment to a military, uh, a military law, a military law, uh, yeah, legislation. Uh, so then they tried a different thing, which was I think, there they didn't understand the problem, the left. And it had to do with that program that I was just telling you about. Namely, they saw this very tight coupling between the military support and the development of science and engineering in this country. And it was very it was very benign. It was generate more people. And these people were working on all sorts of different disciplines. They were working on everything you can think of in science. And none of it had to do with military technology. And so they said, oh my god, the military has a, a hand stranglehold on these scientists. And they want to break that up. And that was an active thing. And then there's something called Mansfield Amendment 2. Stop everything. What happened was they, this, that law said military can only support that kind of research that has relevance to its mission. And that ended that. And then what happened is the people here used that as a way of cleaning house. So they threw me out of RLE, which was a, a lab, and I was a, a liage of the physics department. I was in no lab at all. And, uh, and, uh, and then in this horrible Building 20, and uh, sort of this, just this is, you know, no longer part of anything important. And so I decided that I want to start building this. I got a little money from the military, and I want to build something bigger. And I had the idea. There's a long story in there which I won't tell about how we got the Germans started in this. We did a beautiful job, by the way, of getting the whole idea of this interferometric method working. The Germans deserve an enormous amount of credit for building better interferometers and showing the scaling laws that I had developed in that earlier paper. And my thing was not in the same league as the German system. That was a beautifully done thing. The story of LIGO is partly a story of the advance of technology. Professor Weiss says that, according to his calculations of how sensitive a gravitational wave detector would need to be, responding to a strain of 10 to the minus 23, that is a fractional change in distance 
of a decimal point followed by 22 zeros before the one, it would take many, many years of developing new technology to get to that. He felt he couldn't ask a graduate student to work on such a project because they would either need to be a student for decades or they wouldn't see the fruition of their work during the usual four to six years of graduate school. But I began to realize that if I was ever going to be able to put a student on that thing, on that prototype, or any prototype that followed that wasn't big enough to make a real detection. And I knew how big it had to be, because now I knew it was strain of 10 to minus You're 21 the calculation. or something. Yep. We now had done the calculation. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> then what, what was necessary was that uh, you had to have an awful lot of technology development. There would be no science for many, many, many years. And that's something the department at that time could not quite tolerate. Okay? So I could not put a graduate student on that. I, could, I stopped an undergraduate on it. And as soon as they became wanting to get out and live a life, I would put them on the other thing going on in the lab, which was studies of the cosmic background radiation, which did produce an occasional paper. Where they could get a job. Yeah, that's right, exactly. And so that was one of the big problems I had. I could not put graduate students on it. And then I had this idea of, let's see, there's got to be a, a way of breaking this, this problem. And I decided, let's right away find out how much it really would cost and where would you put a four or even a 10 kilometer gravitational wave detector? And I got industry to help me. And it turns out it was Stone and Webster and Arthur D. Little, which is a company that used to be on here. They, they, I pulled them together with the help of the NSF, who gave me money for this. It's very important. Richard Isaacson at the NSF saw the wisdom of this and wanted this study done for how much it would cost and how you would go from prototype to big. Did he have any idea how long, how many years it would no, take? No, we both sort of... And you were, probably didn't either, We were either, both right? dreamers. I mean, well, yeah, that's yeah. how you get things done. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but he's critical to the whole damn thing, okay? Otherwise, no, nothing would have happened. And uh, what then came of it was that Rich gave me $300,000, which in those days, which is, I'm 79, 78 money. Uh, I already had met with Kip in, in 1975, and I was running a committee for the NASA at that time, and I had met with Kip, and we had talked about what kind of a thing might Caltech do if they're going to start a new program in experimental work. And that meeting between Kip and me lasted a whole night, and we finally settled, or he settled on, it would be electromagnetic detection of gravitational waves. But only after I suggested it to him, because he, in his book, says, no, no, that won't work, okay? And I understood what his problem was. I can tell you what his problem was. It was, it was very cute. He had done the calculation. If you look at the book, for one photon. Okay, one photon, you can only do about the wavelength of a photon. You no, know, no, you need zillions and zillions of photons. And then you can break that down into 10 to the 11, 10 to the 12 parts. And he'd not put that together. And as soon as he saw that, I mean, he was all for it. I mean, Kip is a real genius, I think. And so, uh, anyway, we became, became buddies under that. And so uh, he went and hired Don Drever. Uh, my recommendation, I didn't know Drever, but Drever had begun to think this way also. And it's really suggested the, the Munich group to him, but none of those people were scientists. They were all engineers. And somehow Kip couldn't think of bringing these engineers as candidates of professors in the Caltech physics department. Physics department. Yeah. That was something he couldn't quite manage to put together. But at, at that time, Caltech didn't have an experimental program. Right, that was, no, 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 it I was, mean, and this, Kip this, invented this. This was the beginning of this it. This was the beginning of it. In 1975, and in 78 or so, he hired 
he hired Duran. And that's just about the same time that I went to NSF and asked for this money to study how you would build a big one. Those were, what was, how was Caltech and that related to it was that here was another big institution like MIT, but they were willing to make an investment in this. And I already knew that MIT was not even willing to have a professor short of me in it because I tried to get professors. They wouldn't have it. They, and they still don't want, they wouldn't put graduate, let me put graduate students on it. So it's pretty crazy. So, okay, uh, I remake, it's, it's called the Blue Book Study, which was a three-year study. Came out, it was a thing that was given to the NSF. It came up with a price tag that was too low by a factor of about two. Uh, and it, but it gave, it gave up, it gave in on, there were plenty of sites. The technology looked, even people in industry who joined us looked like it was not crazy. And so I went, after we presented it, and here's where the, where the ax fell. When I, Kip, Ron Drever, and I presented the Blue Book to the N an NSF committee in 83, 1983, it got a fantastic recommendation from that committee. And the guy who wrote the recommendation is Stan Desser, and I forever will be grateful to him for this. He knows this, by the way, that I know this. He wrote a thing, this is the right, the right thing for the NSF to do as a project. And this is more than 30 years before you made the actual oh, discovery. Oh, yeah, 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 wait, 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 this had to, at least, since 83. That's right, and we made the discovery in 2015. So we forged, Chip and I, with very reluctantly drawn Drever, who was reluctant about doing anything like this, we forged this collaboration that has lasted now for these many years. And it became a Caltech project with MIT as a contract. I'm, I'm constantly amazed that you guys worked on this for 40 years. Many generations of, of grad students came and went, yeah. and yet you stuck with it. I mean, were there, was there ever a point in time where you were worried that it wasn't going to work? Well, I, I kept getting my charge by every time we went back to the lab. Things went getting better and better. So See, you, I, mean, since I hated this, this politics. So I would spend weekends in the lab and at night and uh, with the students, and we would make, the, make things work better and better. And the same thing was going on in other places also. So it turns out the thing that saved us all is the fact that the experimenters still got pleasure out of what they were doing. I'm sorry to tell you that. I mean, just walking between Washington and MIT would have been actually death, as far as I can see. Such a project as LIGO required hundreds of physicists and engineers. Professor Weiss mentioned several of his collaborators, Kip Thorne, the principal theorist on the LIGO project, Barry Barish, a physicist at Caltech, Peter Fritschel, a physicist at MIT, and Peter Shawan, a physicist at the University of Maryland. Another very important person on the project mentioned earlier and again below is Ron Drever, a Scottish physicist. So, uh, and then, so that was the beginning of a very bad time at MIT. And then one more story, although since we're talking about that, the collaboration had been formed. Uh, it turned out, and this is in this book that you would know about, Kip, Barry, Kip Thorne, Barry Barish, uh, Peter Fritchell, who is a, who is a principal scientist, a senior scientist at MIT, and uh, Peter Shawhan, who is a professor at, uh, at the University of, uh, 
of Maryland. This is the history of LIGO yeah. that you're it's, writing yeah, now and with And the, the five of us are trying to write what, up a little bit of what I'm telling you. I mean, more than what I'm telling you, but, and it's not so easy to write up because it's got so many nuances and little pieces. But the, the remaining piece, which finally did it, uh, until there was a real change in the MIT physics department, which happened, by the way, uh, was that the NSF, after a 1986 second meeting of a very, very august committee that I put together for the NSF that met up at this American Academy, you know, up here on Beacon Street, here in, next to Harvard, uh, they looked at this field that, and they were charmed by it. Again, the second committee, big committee, a lot of Nobel Prize winners on that committee. And they got, but they said, look, you can't do it the way you're doing it. You've got to find yourself a director. At the time, the three of us, because Ron Drever wouldn't agree to anything, were running it together. That's Kip, Drever, and myself. And we couldn't make decisions. We couldn't, I was the only one who could talk to the project manager, who was a Caltech person. And it was just a very, very, it was moving much too slowly. So the NSF came to Boston. Not Rich Isaacson, who's smarter than many of the other people. He knew what was going to happen. But designees of the, of the mathematical, physical size, of, uh, of science, mathematical phys and physical size, scientific, God, MPS, what the hell, mathematics, physics, physical sciences, yeah. Uh, a group of people came, two, three people, two people came. And the, the head of the, my department, those two guys from the NSF, the head of the project that had been picked by Caltech, a guy named Ropus Vogt, Robbie Vogt, who you probably yeah, know from your time at Caltech, and John Deutsch, we all met. Let me skip ahead to the actual discovery in 2015. Right. Yeah. So, do you remember what you thought when you first heard that there'd been a signal detected? No, that's an interesting story in its own right. But no, I, I was sent by the, you're talking about the discovery. I want to give you- I want to know your reaction. I, I'm going to tell you, mm -hmm. but there's a little story before the discovery, unfortunately. There's always another story. In this next section, Professor Weiss mentions RF noise, which is noise at radio frequencies. Of course, any kind of noise that's not understood and compensated for can ruin an experiment, because then you can't distinguish a true detection, the actual signal, from a false detection. Uh, and what happened was that uh, Peter Fritchell, who is the, the guy in my group who is the senior scientist really, sent me to Louisiana because there was a problem there. And that was in the beginning of August. No, it was the middle, yeah, the middle of August, excuse me, of 2015. We made the discovery on the 14th of September that year. He sends me down there in the middle of August and he says, why don't you find out there's something wrong with there's some RF pickup down there. LIGO consists of two kilometer long detectors, one in Livingston, Louisiana, and one in Hanford, Washington. So I go down there and, uh, I go, and, and the place is sweltering in RF noise. I mean, you know, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, sends little cars around the, the whole country to find out are there people polluting the airwaves with radio frequency crap. Well, we were doing it down there. That was well, certainly we were very far from Baton Rouge and quite far from New Orleans. But the people around us were getting—they couldn't pick up television sets. Yeah, they couldn't get television signals because of us, and they probably had probably complained. 
They didn't know it was from us, but they fly with suddenly all black bands on their television sets. So I went down there and found out we had really screwed up. And I carefully looked at it. It took me a couple of days to get to the bottom of it. I, I called Peter up and I said, look, this looks pretty hard. Uh, is, it, is it just as bad at Hanford? That's the other site up in Mark. And uh, so they sent somebody up there who said, yeah, probably not as bad, but it's bad. So I, then Peter asked me how long would it take to fix. I said, I, I think it, you have to take, we have to take a lot of wires out, put a lot of coax, a lot of, it's going to take two to three weeks. So, so you, you never fixed the problem? No, that we, not till later. We not didn't till fix later. It. We didn't fix so, it. So, uh, and I go over quickly, I look at the Hanford log, and by I mean, at the, uh, the Louisiana log, and it's the same story. Fix it time has been stopped. And then, how can that be? And now, then I, suddenly I got an email that says, look at this site. And there was this incredible signal. A huge signal compared to what we would have expected. And obviously, the first thought was, that's an injection. Well, why are they making all this fuss about it? What's an injection? Now, I'll explain to you an injection. It was a way of testing the entire LIGO system from the year 2002, once it was running, to about 2010, when we start, started, stopped running, and to rebuild the system so it became more sensitive. From 2010 to 2014, we were not running. We were building, making things better, OK? And we had done engineering runs. We were about to our first observational run, which was September 2015. That's why that was such an important thing. And so uh, I said, well, you know, I mean, obviously I said it's a blind injection. What is a blind injection? We did this. It was a way of testing the entire system of people doing the data analysis, which is 100 people easily, maybe even more than that, maybe 300 people, testing our, our units whether we thought we had the sensitivity we have, in other words, testing the electronics, testing the calibration of the system, all of that gets tested by putting, having a blind signal, a signal that only one person knows about. So you put in something you by put hand. put something in by hand, and you tell the director when it was and exactly the parameters and everything about it, but nobody else. And then they're supposed to sniff it out. And, and you thought that that... Oh, it, it's obviously, that's what it was. So when did so, you guys decide so that it was I, not so, an injection? So uh, I, by noontime, it was still being talked about. This was now 8 in the morning uh, on East Coast time. Noontime, there was still all this talk about uh, we should close up everything, make sure everything. And I then began to find out that, no, there was no blind injection. The guys who were going to do that weren't even ready to do it yet. Could it be a hack? Well, that's the very next thing that happened. The very next thing we thought about was, and that's much more difficult, uh, we had been hacked. And of course, that is something you would never have thought about 20 years ago. But now it's something you've got to really worry about. And you've got to worry about it in an unbelievably detailed way. And so that took six weeks before we were quite certain that we were not hacked. But it never got perfectly so. You could make the hackers smarter and smarter and smarter every time you eliminated more and more possible ways of the hacking. I mean, there, there's always if yes, there was one hacker who knew exactly this code, and another hacker who was there, and he was got they got the they got their hands in one of these. I mean, there, more and more insane, uh, crazy stories got made up for these hackers. So, so when along that six-week period did you personally I know, decide no, that no, this me, was not, real? No, no, no. That's the question. I mean, that, that's the question. I'm getting there. Okay. But it takes a little more. I'm sorry. Uh, and then what happened is Matt Evans, who I have a nervous regard for, pulled all the tests, everything together, and he gave a big meeting for the whole 
everybody, and said, if it's hackers, they have to be geniuses that we have never seen. Okay, and he says it's probably not a hack. And then luckily for us, uh, there was another event, but it was not a good event. That was sort of in the end of September. People have, it, takes, it takes a long time now to come up with an event. You, you don't get it right away. There was because you have to do a lot of manipulation. But there was another event, different masses entirely, but it wasn't, as far as I was concerned, it wasn't really a good event. And then we kept arguing about it and arguing about it, and then there was a really good event on the day after Christmas of that year. And that one did it for me. Okay? That, we had the long time series, had enough signal noise, the apparatus hadn't farted that kind of noise, and I would call it a fart, that's what it is. I mean, Anyway, I mean, yes, it's a chirp, but that's okay. And so that's when we decided to write the paper. What did you feel personally at that well, time? Well, I felt, I felt, well, that's a good question. I felt that we'd done it by that time. That second event did it for me. And I mean, I was probably one of the, one of the most skeptical of all. Although I must tell you something which is, I can't lie about. And that is, Rich Isaacson, this very good friend of mine who was the NSF, happened to be coming to Maine. And he was there two days after the event. And we showed it to him. And, you know, we showed it to him. And we all went to a restaurant and had a tentative celebration. We had it, but it was tentative. Rich didn't believe it, I didn't believe it, but now there was something new, was different. We ought to at least drink to that. Well, did you tell your wife about it? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And what did she say? She's, I don't think she cared that much. That's a sad story to tell you. Uh, I mean, will that, I think the things that interest her, will that leave you home more? That kind of thing. And I couldn't say yes to that. I, she didn't ask that. Thank God she didn't ask that. But, but that's the kind of thing that's in her mind. Okay, good. Now, now let's get on to other things. Yeah. But she now understands the impact of it and the importance of it. Well, since you'd sort of been having fun all along yeah. for the 40 years of, of yeah. making one thing work and then another thing work and another thing work, was this anticlimactic to no, make the no, actual no, discovery? No, it was, no, it was a climax that built up. Oh yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I kept hoping it would be, but I wasn't sure of it. But you no, know, everything we tried didn't come out, it came out negative. The apparatus didn't do this on its own, which was my deepest worry. You, know, look, you have to look at it as an experimenter. We hardly understood, this, this was a grand new child, this apparatus. We had no experience with it whatsoever. I mean, we just finished building it. And now all of a sudden, we're testing it. And it gives us this crazy thing almost a day after we begin to, to run with it. How do I know it's making, not making that up? I don't know anything about this apparatus, what its peculiarities are. So that is really what's behind my skepticism. I don't have any experience with this thing. And that experience base grew over that length of time. It didn't do it, and when it did do it, it made things that looked like it ought to be theoretically right. Well, I guess it's a scientist's job to be skeptical. Yep. And yeah. how, do you, how do you balance that skepticism with the passion for the project? I understand. And now that's a very difficult problem. And I think as you get, if it, if it had been younger, I would have been probably 
uh, less less reasonable about it. I would have may maybe pushed harder that we immediately decided to detection. But in my old age, I lived through Weber. I've lived through uh, cold fusion. I've lived through a lot of different things, the pathological science, and I just didn't want to get sucked down. Of course, you weren't old when you started on the project. <laughs> no, I, know. I mean, you and Kip were yeah. both yeah, on I, the younger I, side. I, I think, I mean, I've not tested everybody on the, uh, I think we did it right in the way we approached it. I am very proud of the team that Peter Fitchell pulled together. Well, it wasn't him pulling, he, he ran it. I think the people made the team were the, the head of the LIGO Science Collaboration at, at that time, which was Gabi Gonzalez. She knew the right people to put on it, and, and Barry, Barry knew the right people to put on that, that writing committee. I was on it, and I wrote part of the historical part and stuff like that. But uh, I watched that committee as they fought trying to understand and grapple with it. And it was well done, I thought. It's a nice paper. Let me switch gears a little bit yeah. and ask you uh, some, some general questions. Um, some physicists think there will someday be a theory of everything or a final theory of physics and nature that doesn't need any further approximation. Do you think so? Do you think such a final theory exists or a theory of everything? I don't really believe it. And I find nature so completely variegated and so dramatically interesting on its own. <clears throat> For example, I mean, if it was only physics, maybe. But you've got to include biology in it. Biology, in my mind, is so goddamn complicated. And the things that in make you feel and emotions that you have are so complicated that I don't see that something come in and coming in a simple explanation. I just don't see it. Now, do I think it's going to come from God or something like that? No, I don't need that. I don't need that. Animals are complicated. We're complicated because we are made of so many little bits. And the fact that somehow evolution has made it so these bits, the ones that survived, work together, has made it very, very hard to understand. So I don't, I don't need an external being to, to, to tell me what to do and how I feel about it. I just admire the complexity of this thing, and I say, God Almighty, I don't know, I say God because it's like Einstein says God, the grosser, you know, the, the big one. But, and then that's the way I mean God. I don't mean it in terms yeah. of somebody looking down and telling me I should or should not do yeah. this. I think that's complete nonsense. But the, uh, the fact that we have ethics and things like that are all things that are part of, I think, evolutionary things that have made it so we survive. But that's a separate story. I'm beginning to talk nonsense now myself. So. But the, uh, the thing is, I don't think we'll ever have a theory of everything because it's too complicated. Well, let, let's say hypothetically, and yeah. this is very hypothetical, suppose there was an all-knowing being, yeah. you can call it God or whatever, and this being could tell you the final theory if you pushed a button. <laughs> would you push the button? Of course I would. I'd want to find out. There's no danger in it. Of course I'd push that button. But, you know, I'd push it because somebody said, yeah, this guy exists. I mean, you know, I'd love to know, but I don't believe it. 
and it might be some guy behind the curtain like in The Wizard of Oz, you know, <laughs> telling bullshit to everybody. But I'd love to know what this thing is about, yeah. I mean, you know, be careful with that. It's not that I'm going to accept what the guy says. But you're, you're putting me in a situation where just my curiosity has just got past what I could tolerate, okay? Yeah. So you were talking about the com complexity of biology and emotions. Do you think that, that brain science will ever evolve to the point yeah. where you could take the brains of two different people and get a total readout. I know what you're saying. And and let's say predict whether they would fall in love. That would be a wonderful. A computer. That would be wonderful. You think, you think that we'll ever get to that point in brain science? I wouldn't be a bit surprised that we could get to something like that. That's still pretty elementary. It's elementary. Yeah, I mean, the emotions are so strong. I think where you get into trouble is things where the emotions and the reasoning become subtle and intermixed in a very complicated way. An ethical problem in particular, you know? I think that's the place where I don't know how... I'm, 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 I, wish, I wish I hadn't said already what I've said. I think it's just plain too complicated. I'm too complicated. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, if, I mean, I, I, look, and you can say to me, look, like you've spent all your life looking at signals that are in the noise, why can't one pull out. I, my guess is that if love is such a, a, a completely anomalous and strong emotion, it wipes you out. I mean, you know, anything that wipes you out is, must be somewhere in the physiological system somehow. It's going to be there. You're going to find out if that person fell in love or not. I guarantee it. And I can almost tell when the student comes to me and I, he's in trouble or she's in trouble. Yeah, what did it is you got a love affair. Right. Don't worry about it. I mean, you can almost see it written all over them, you know. But uh, the, uh, the subtle things like, is that a sensible thing to do, or is that something that's hurtful? That's well, a let very, me ask you that very, question. That's a very hard. Is that a sensible thing what? to do? What to to build computers that can analyze the brain? Well, it's going degree. to happen. I don't matter if it's sensible. It's going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. It's, it's inevitable. Now, whether you believe it or all, whether you can get all the subtlety that it has, I find computers sort of brainless in most of the cases that I've run. They never catch the mistakes that I make. You know, they ought to, but they don't. They just give me false crap and because I put the false crap in there. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but look, you're, you're treading a very complicated corner there. And, uh, I, you know, I could be dead wrong. Maybe the biologists will have it absolutely straight and they will be able to recreate you and me exactly in, a, let's say, in 100 years. I don't believe it. I think it's just too complicated. But is it, is it impossible? No. It's just, I think it's just, I don't know how it would be done. Do, do you think that there, there are questions that, that science will never be able to answer? I, I agree. They're, they're, I mean, and I hate to admit that. What, what are some of the questions that science... Well, for example, uh, you know... Well, a question that you ask yourself always, why do you exist? Why do I exist? Why do you exist? Well, yeah, okay, your parents had a little fun with them, making you. Okay, is that the whole story? No, okay, so now here you are, and you want to continue living. Why do you want to do that? Because everything you think of might hurt more? I don't know. Why do we exist? That's a question I don't answer easily, and I don't ponder very often. 
And you think that that's one that science? Will I don't not think answer. I don't think science can answer that. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's there's also an even bigger question than that, which you probably have asked yourself: Why is there something rather than nothing? Ah, well, that, that's related to that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You're asking about initial conditions, which I had nothing to do with. <laughs> well, I didn't have any conditional, initial conditions. My my parents meeting and deciding to make me either. You yeah, know, Alan, I I'm not any. There's no wisdom in what we've just talked about. I I don't think. Not for me, at least. Uh, and I just don't feel I have any wisdom about these things. I I'm fundamentally a plumber. Let's be honest about it. A, <laughs> a, a good plumber. A good plumber. So. so so if we look at uh, just in the last couple of centuries, the incredible advances that, that science has made. I mean, we learned, uh, uh, we have an idea of, of the Big Bang and where the universe came from. We, 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 have, we, we, we know something about the instructions that human beings are made out of. I mean, just one incredible discovery after another. Yeah. Do you think, that those discoveries make us feel smaller or, or bigger? Oh no, they make us feel bigger. I think. They're wonderful discoveries to ponder. And, uh, and they make life a lot more interesting. I, no, no, no. I think science, based on facts that you can demonstrate, and all of these things you've mentioned, mentioned talked about, <coughs> have, a, have an empirical basis. They're not those very complicated thought questions you were asking me before. I mean, these are all empirically based things that we have learned. They are part of our story now, and I love it, you know? And if somebody really manages to do a good job on taking a filter to the brain and says, this person is in love, and I can identify who it is, I'd like, if they can prove that to me, that would be spectacular. But I'll go for it. I just don't know. Uh, no, I think the... The thing that the fact that, that that you can you can demonstrate and you can measure all the things you mentioned makes it part of us. That's the and it's not something to, to denigrate. It's not something to think is mechan mechanistic. The more we know about everything, the I think the more. We believe in and what we we believe in nature. We make ourselves part of nature. I think that's one of the joys of living, is that finding things out. Well, there's another way of asking the question. Yeah. Um, should we be with these discoveries that we've made? Should we be amazed or humbled? Well, that's yeah, that's a good question. That depends on the day you wake up that morning. I think it's both. It's both. Why is it both? Can you explain well, it, it, the way that should make us amazed? It, it makes it, us amazed. Well, humble because that this, the complexity that we have, we have uncovered already is amazing. And it's humble because we really, look, it's this whole story of us being on the Earth, then noting we're part of the galaxy, then noting that the galaxy is part of billions of other galaxies, then noting that, oh yeah, that's all part of the universe. And God help us, it might even be another one of many, many universes, which I don't know if I want to buy that. Because nobody's told me how to find that out. That's the real problem with the multiverse business. Tell me what you do to find that out, and I'll try my damnedest to find it out. Okay, but not just because it makes a pretty theory. Okay. 
So the humbling part is, yeah, it's a dramatic thing. It's grown from something that's very local to something that's really covers unbelievable scale, time and 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 range in, in distance. Yeah. So the last thing I want to ask you about is, I understand that there will be a a, a space-based version of uh, LIGO put into space. Yeah. And that that will be able to have even greater sensitivity, and I don't know all the details. Well, I can tell you what the details are. No, it's called LISA, the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. Uh, it grew, I mean, as long as we have been talking so much about the history, it grew out of that committee that Chip Thorne was, uh, Chip Thorne was part of, well, Chip Thorne, did give test he gave testimony to the committee. I was the chair. And that it grew out of that committee. It was taken up by Peter Vendor, who was a strong, member of it and also inventor of much of the ideas and the technology associated with these, it's all due to him. Um, and what will it do? It will look at gravitational waves at a frequency, or uh, let's say a period of minutes to hours. That's the band. It's like looking at, when you look at the universe with electromagnetic radiation, your eyes look at the optical and there's the infrared which you can't see, that's a huge range, and then there's the radio range. I would call that the infrared range. What we have, what we have been looking at with the black holes and the neutron stars, are the optical range. Okay. And what kind of things live in that, in that infrared range that are interesting? Well, first, for example, the black hole we have in our own galaxy. We have a significant black hole sitting in the center of our galaxy, ten to the six solar masses. Well, when they cavort with each other and galaxies get together and begin to sniff, sniff at each other, those black holes play a very, very important part. And the motions of those black holes will be seen by that, by, by Lisa. 10 to the 6, 10 to the 5, 10 to the 3, all those monstrous black holes. Not the enormous black holes. The 10 to the 9 solar mass black holes are much too slow for Too Lisa. slow. Yeah, they're there. But those are even much earlier. And maybe eventually we will get to see those too. But you will see the dynamics of big black holes, ten, yeah, million to a thousand solar masses, interacting with each other, and they do some interesting stuff. They have very, very long time series, and will give us exquisite, absolutely exquisite tests of the general theory of relativity and slight modifications of that theory if it's necessary. They will give really precision measurements, much more precise because we have very long wave trains and very, very high signal noise. The other thing it'll show us is uh, the, it'll t tell us what, what will be, there'll be a background of white dwarf binaries. The thing that Einstein could have calculated, but these uh, make a background. What white dwarfs have periods of eight hours. Uh, uh, there are some that have shorter periods, two hours, and they make a noise, a background noise of stochastic noise of gravitational waves. It'd be very interesting to look at that noise. Uh, Will we be able to explore the early universe? Not really very much. In the early 1980s, the standard Big Bang model of the origin of the universe was modified by a model called inflation. According to the inflation model, the universe expanded exponentially fast in its infancy before returning to the more leisurely rate of expansion of the standard Big Bang model. The B modes that Weiss refers to are a particular pattern of the cosmic background radiation caused by gravitational radiation 
and the exponential expansion of the inflation model. Let me tell you that the early universe, and that, that is, a, it, you know, I, mean, that, I, want, I was getting there, but that's a, a, sort of a little bit of a sad story. It'll be able to observe things which we are not sure of right now. Now, that's not a reason not to look. And of course, we've been doing the same thing. We look at signals that are stochastic background signals that could come from the primordial universe. Now, what? let me take and tell you sort of the interesting part. Yes, you can, there, we have to talk about the whole universe as an entirety. The most interesting, I think, gravitational wave source would be inflation if it exists. That's this idea that Alan Guth and others have invented where the universe expands by 10, 20 orders of magnitude in about 10 to the minus 30 seconds. I mean, this unbelievable, it's really about as mythical as Hindu mythology about the great soup of milk. I mean, to me, it's wild. But okay, but it fits some theory. And, uh, and then after those very, very expansive moments, which are dominated by quantum fluctuations, the universe is a P. And it has unbelievable energy. In fact, it has mostly repulsive energy in it. It's this repulsive gravity that drives it. That's the infloton. And then when that gets exhausted, it becomes attractive. And it has so much energy that it keeps going, and we're still part of that. But it's now attractive. And uh, so there is supposed to be a huge amount of gravitational radiation from the quantum fluctuations of that very early moment. That is the one that everybody's looking for. And could, the, the could, Lisa, mode, sorry. could Lisa tell us something about that? No. No. Neither will LIGO. Neither will anything that follows until we make something called Big Bang Observer. That will be the last thing I'll tell you about. Okay. So, no. Lisa can't, not if it's that, not if the theory is right of inflation. Well, of course, inflation has many variants. But the energies are sort of defined. And uh, so consequently, it's not expected that Lisa will see that primordial background of inflationary gravitational waves. It could see other kinds of it, cosmological, and so could the ground-based things, which are things where, for example, a change in state has happened in the universe's expansion. Where, for example, in the earliest moments of the universe, after inflation is over, all the forces are equal in strength. Gravity is as strong as electromagnetism, electromagnetism has nuclear force and so forth. And then all of a sudden, they break away. And they don't necessarily break away uniformly. There are lumps, little pieces, little bubbles all around that have different times when that happens. And that makes gravitational waves of a very strong variety, but not primordial ones of the inflationary type. Both Lisa and LIGO and its third generation cousins can, can detect that. Also, when the, strong, when the weak interactions separate from the electromagnetic ones, very much later in the universe, that could make bubbles also. And that can be seen, and that can certainly be seen by ground-based and maybe even by uh, the Lisa. So there is cosmological information, but it's not the one that everybody's hoping for. The one that everybody's hoping for is the inflationary one. And the B modes, which is this experiment that looks at polarization of, of the cosmic, background, of the cosmic background, has a chance for that. And that's now, now yeah. we're not done yet. Now we're not done yet. Wow. Ray Weiss is in his 90s, but true to the pioneering spirit that energized him through the long years developing LIGO, he looks to the future 
in which younger collaborators like Nergis Mavavala, now Dean of Science at MIT and the subject of another of our podcasts, continue to innovate and train new generations of scientists and researchers. Our sincere thanks to Ray Weiss and all the support staff at the MIT LIGO Laboratory for inviting us in for searching. To me, the LIGO story is an amazing example of how human curiosity can lead to technological invention and then in turn to new ways of understanding the universe. The LIGO story shows that the age of discovery is not past but actively continues in the present and on into an exciting and never-ending future. For searching our quest for meaning in the age of science, this is Alan Lightman. Thanks for listening.